That's my nature is to bring people together randomly. And in fact, uh, my partner always makes fun of me because, you know, I'll have a dinner party and he'll ask me like, how many randos are coming tonight? (laughs) Because I'll meet somebody for five minutes at an event and think, oh my gosh, like you seem so interesting. You know, come to my house and I'm going to make you dinner. So I've always done stuff like that. Hello and welcome to Art Restart where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with social sculptor and cultural strategist Philippa Pham Hughes. Now, I could just go on and pretend I knew what a social sculptor was when I invited Philippa to join me in the show, but you know what? I had no idea, which of course is one of the reasons I invited her. She was quick to tell me that she did not invent the term. That distinction belongs to a German artist active in the 60s and 70s named Joseph Boys. But what Philippa has done is to make the practice truly her own, relevant if not crucial to Americans living in the 21st century. Since 2007, when she started hosting her gatherings, Philippa has curated what she calls creative activations. These are carefully planned spaces and events to which groups of complete strangers from different walks of life meet face-to-face and break bread, often quite literally. Or pie. In these activations, with Philippa's guidance, participants can touch the third rails of polite discussion— whether they be politics or religion, because the intent is always to keep everyone safe and equally committed to open communication and the building of a better world. Philippa is currently resident artist at the University of Michigan Museum of Art and is visiting fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins. She's worked with several institutions in her current hometown of Washington, D.C., and in a variety of settings all over the country, in activations both large and intimate. Knowing that she earned a law degree before committing to her current practice, I started off by asking her how she eventually found her artistic path. Well, you know, it's there there was no path, you know, no no straight line, that is for sure because you're right. Um I didn't start off pursuing a career in the arts. You know, the, the thing I always tell people is like, you know, I have an Asian mother and, you know, in Asian culture you get three options for a career, doctor, lawyer, or engineer. And so I picked the easiest, what I thought was the easiest one of those three. (laughs) But like you said, I've always had this sort of lifelong curiosity. I've always loved to write. That was probably sort of my first artistic expression. But, you know, after a few years of law practice, I just realized like I just wasn't cut out for that. (laughs) So my, my path toward becoming an artist was very circuitous. I just started trying things. I I experimented. I I tried things, you know, like back in 2007. Actually, let me go back even further than that. I mean, kind of, I, I feel like that the very first sort of the foundation for this was when I was still practicing law and I just started inviting artists to my house for salons. And it sounds so easy and simple, but I just wanted to like talk to them and learn about their practices and hear about their works and what how they talked about it. And so I kind of like fancied myself a modern day version of Gertrude Stein, where I would like create these spaces where we drink wine and talk about art and, you know, what it meant. 
I feel like those were the very first seeds of the practice that I, I do now. And is there anything in your legal education or practice that you think has come in handy? Or was it just a completely tangential moment in your life? Oh, it's a, it was absolutely handy because like the thing about law, going to law school, which I loved, I hated practicing law. Oh, you love law school. Okay. Tell me more. Whenever I say that to like other lawyers are like, you're crazy. <laughs> but you know, the thing that you learn in law school is not like the law. What you learn is how to spot problems, like figure out what what are the problems and then ask questions so that you can figure out what the solutions are. And so really being a good lawyer is about solutions, figuring out what the solutions are. And that has definitely come in handy throughout my life, not just in the artistic practice, but in just really thinking about how to envision this better world is like, here's our problem. What are we going to do to solve that? In a way, it sounds like your work is really anthropological, sociological. What about your work feels primarily artistic to you? I love that you use the words anthropological and sociological because I also often joke recently that I've become this sort of amateur social scientist. <laughs> yeah. Um, Probably professional by this point. You must, know, yeah. Once I started reading and learning more about sociology and psychology and really being more reflective, like self-reflective and examining myself, I feel like the artistic practice became better. And so... It is interesting to try to like pull out like what is it what about this is the art in it um, because a lot of people do question like wh whether relational aesthetic is even a real art form at all <laughs> and I think part of the problem is because you know you don't end up with an object at the end um, you end up with a relationship or a conversation and that doesn't feel satisfactory when you think about art as a sculpture or a painting. But it does if you think of art as an experience. As an experience. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And when you think about art as a way of creating a feeling, because that's what some of the greatest art, even in the objects, like that's to define their success is what is the feeling that you have when you view it or hear it or see it. And so I'm trying to create a feeling a sense of like, I've been transformed in some way. And that's really hard when lots of artists talk about their work is like, you know, being transformative. And I'm like, well, that's pretty hard to achieve, you know? And so have you actually achieved that? It's harder to, I think it is harder to achieve when you're just creating objects. And I want to stop and say, I love art objects. I wish you could see, you know, where I'm sitting right now in my living room. I'm surrounded by art objects. I love art objects and collect them passionately. Um, and I go to museums and art spaces all the time because I love them. So I'm not diminishing the object. I'm just trying to create something different, a different way to access these transformative experiences. At what point did you decide to bring together people who were not primarily artist lovers to create these events that you've made about bringing people from different walks of life to mm -hmm to share a meal, to have conversation, to break down barriers? I mean, I've always done that. Like that's my nature is to bring people together randomly. And in fact, um, my partner always makes fun of me because, you know, I'll have a dinner party and he'll ask me like, how many randos are coming tonight? You know? <laughs> because I'll meet somebody for five minutes at an event and think, oh my gosh, like you seem so interesting. 
you know, come to my house and I'm going to make you dinner. So I've always done stuff like that. So, you know, and I get it. Like, it's not, it's not easy to do. And so it's hard to like, you know, I'm teaching, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be teaching this course at Johns Hopkins next semester. And I was thinking, how am I going to teach somebody to do that? Because maybe I, I, I've been, I've been sort of grappling with, is that just a personality defect in myself or something <laughs> you can actually teach someone? So that I, I do think that that's something that I'm going to be thinking a lot about in the next few months as I develop a syllabus for that course. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is how do you, given that you do invite randos into your house, and oftentimes random people with whom you're pretty certain you'll disagree on fundamental issues, Mm -hmm. how do you ensure your overall safety? And I I don't mean just physical, that's important, but also the sense that, oh, I'm feeling safe in my house after this person's left and has said a bunch of things that are maybe repellent to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I try to think about other people's safety more than my own because I have like a pretty high threshold for opinions I don't agree with. Oh, and where did that come from? Well, I think it came from life. <laughs> I, you know, I can probably attribute it to being multicultural um, and like I'm a multiracial person. And so I've always sort of, I, I like, I, I'm inherently struggling with so many different perspectives within my own body all the time. So I think that has really genetically made me more open to different ways of thinking. I don't know if that's, you know, but you know, I I've moved like as a child, I, I once made a list of every school I attended and I came up, I think it was like 13 schools before wow. college. And I was like, oh, like probably that contributed to my ability to see so many different ways of living and thinking. So and I guess- also if I if I understand correctly, you're, you're the child of divorce, right? Also? Yeah, exactly. Which has its own complications. In yeah. fact, I think I read somewhere that you lived in Alaska for a while when your exactly. father was hiding you from your mom, right? Oh my gosh, yes. You you definitely dive deep. Thank you. <laughs> so that that must that must do a lot to a kid and her sense of belonging. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, I remember, you know, you know, I didn't know I was being kidnapped at the time. I just thought we were living with our dad. You know, so like it's another one of those situations where it's like, "Oh, she didn't know where we were. Like she had to hire an investigator to find us." So, I, you know, so I think that was kind of interesting, but when we were there, I was 7. And we lived in a predominantly white community. It was a tiny community. So K through 12 was all in the same building. And I was treated like, a, you know, like a native child. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not like the, that, that was actually one of my very first memories of feeling like, oh, I, I look different from everybody around me. And they're, you know, they were treated very badly, as you might know from that history. So I thought, oh. I don't know. I've been thinking about that as one of my very first memories of not feeling like I belonged. How has your work changed the way you feel your sense of belonging in the world today? Well, kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about the sort of sociological aspects of my work. And I I think you even mentioned it in, in your questions that you sent me earlier before we talked today is it's almost therapeutic. 
um, which I, I realize it is kind of therapeutic because the way I think one of the things that I learned after organizing many, maybe a hundred dinners with people from across the political spectrum is that people are incapable of speaking about politics. The average person, <laughs> they think that they're really knowledgeable and they're, everybody's got an opinion, but people aren't actually really good at it or ready for it. And so one of the things that I've gone back to I, that, that I've started doing with the organizing of these dinners is that I tell people before they come, like, you can't, you don't get to talk. You're not going to talk about politics when you get here. And I lead them through a series of self-reflection and self-examination interactive pieces, you know, that involve some kind of artistic practice. Um, sometimes it's poetry, music, something like that. And so, so you mean once people show up, this happens as a group? Yes. Okay. And, you know, and then eventually I say, okay, now let's answer some, you know, let's, let's, here's, here's a prompt around some sort of quasi political question. So that was a long way of saying that I realized after a long period of, again, experimentation, that my sense of belonging came from understanding, like doing a lot of understanding of who I am, what do I stand for? Like the self-examination helped me to feel a greater sense of belonging in the world as a human and in the different identities that I occupy. And so I'm trying to create space for that same kind of self-reflection and self-examination with the social sculptures that I'm creating. So when people arrive, they have to begin first with those kinds of questions before they can start talking about, you know, politics. And politics is kind of like the least interesting part uh, hmm. of dialogues at this point. You strike me as relentlessly, no, that's the wrong word. You strike me as, you definitely say, you're, you yourself describe yourself as exuberant, <laughs> but you also strike me as being persistently optimistic, yeah. which, uh, which surprises me because especially in this country in the last few years, I think people have shown their worst stripes, I feel. Your work is so much about working against dehumanizing. And what's happened recently is that I'm sure you particularly know as an Asian American woman in this country today, it is all too easy for dehumanizing to happen on the streets or out and about these days. So do you ever feel like in your work, you are fighting an uphill battle? How do you, how do you remain optimistic and are you optimistic? I am optimistic, but I've definitely had my moments. Um, January 6th was a moment where I lost a lot of my optimism. But here's the thing. Yes, some people have gone to extreme measures to, I don't know, to destroy democracy and to you know destroy the social fabric of our society and the thing that gives me optimism is that the majority of people aren't like that i mean this is the problem with our society and the way our information age is now is that a very few people have the very loudest voices and so a lot of our pessimism comes from thinking that those loud voices represent all of us and they don't they absolutely don't. In fact, there's this really great study by a group called More in Common. It came out a few years ago, and they essentially said that, you know, 77 at the time, 77% of Americans are what they were calling the exhausted majority. That, you know, we were just exhausted by the rhetoric that was surrounding us, especially through media, when in fact most of us 
care about each other. Most of us want our country to be better and for all of us to be better together. And so I think it's just really important to remember that it's very few loud voices that create this sort of doom and gloom pessimism. Now, unfortunately, you know, those loud voices hold a lot of sway. And so I work very hard to maintain my optimism and exuberance in the in the face of all of that, because I think that's my greatest weapon against those those naysayers. Another moment of pessimism that I've had recently that I'm still not able to kind of deal with yet, but I'm working on it, is that, you know, I've been organizing these cross-political conversations since right after the 2016 election. The first group of people came to my house for dinner, like about a month after the election. So I've been, you know, at this a long time. I've been really involved with in a lot of bridge building groups and met a lot of depolarizers. And one thing I started to realize after a few years of doing this was that I would, I rarely, in fact, I, I can't think of a, anybody off the top of my head right this moment who leans conservative, who has started a bridge building depolarizing group. I'm Okay. No, I take that back. I can think of of one. But anyway, 99% of the people I come into contact with who are trying to bridge divides and you know have these kind of dialogues are from the left. And I think that's a real problem when it's just one side trying to reach across and have have these conversations. Do you have hypotheses as to why that's the case? Well, my one hypothesis is that, you know, people who tend to lean left have more consensus building mindsets. And so we want to like hear all the sides and come to, you know, come to consensus together, build a big tent, include everybody. Like that's, it's just kind of, I, it's almost like a, a way of looking at the world and people who are kind of more patriarchal. I'm, have you read this Jonathan Haidt book, The Righteous Mind? He talks a lot about these sort of value systems. And so people who think about the world in sort of these hierarchical ways tend to lean more conservative. And so in a hierarchical world, like somebody at the top tells you this is how it's going to be. It's less consensus building. In fact, just to add one quick thing to that, like, so one of the things that kind of made me a little bit frustrated was that when I'm organizing these larger dinners in, you know, communities around the country in, in like 50 to 80 people, sometimes I spend so much time trying to recruit people from the right to attend the dinners. The amount of time I spend doing that was becoming very frustrating. I started wondering like, why is this so hard? But people on the left are like, oh my, you know, count me in. I always have too many lefties. <laughs> You know, it's so interesting. I recently saw over here in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina Performing Arts, a group called Rimini Protocol mm -hmm. um, do a piece, and I think they're a European company, but they did a piece, they did a residence here, and based on the a range of demographics of this area, the Research Triangle in North Carolina, got 100 people to take part in this theatrical event about kind of the sociology of this area. And it was fascinating. And near the end, though, they said they acknowledged what a difficult time they had. They said they weren't fully representative politically because they had such a hard time getting people leaned right politically because those people felt that in an artistic setting, they would be immediately judged. Mm -hmm. I've heard that over and over. Um, I've heard, you know, as I'm recruiting, people will say, oh, 
you liberals are going to try to ambush me. Ambush? Like, that's a pretty strong word. What do you mean by that? So yeah, they... Yeah, and they probably will be politically judged. I mean, ambushed is a little strong, but <laughs> yes, you probably will be in that. So I have to reassure them. No, I'm trying to create space where it's not about judgment. In fact, judgment is absolutely the antithesis of what we're trying to do here. So I spend a lot of time trying to convince people like, no, no, like we're really trying to create something different here. One instance, I think currently, if not historically, where the left is as rigid as the right is Israel and Palestine. And I'm speaking to you, I think we're in the second or third week of the current Israel-Hamas war. And talk about lack of dialogue, especially in college campuses now. It's getting, it's getting really heated and people are losing their jobs and uh, job offers. So I have a question for you, which may be unfair to, to ambush you with right now, but let's say uh, if somebody, a foundation were to commission you to say, Philippa, we're going to commission you to make work at Harvard or Berkeley specifically about this issue. Would you take the commission? Is it too hot or dangerous right now to start this work? How would you proceed if you would proceed at all? I think I would say no to that. And the reason is because people are too emotional right now to have any kind of dialogue about that issue. And in order to have these kinds of dialogues, and it's not about like suppressing your feelings and emotions, but you have to be able to have a conversation that is driven by understanding and people can't have conversations about understanding when their emotions have taken over. I mean, it's just like human nature, you know? So it's, so, it's I, our brains. We're leaving the prefrontal cortex and going to the mammalian brain. It's, exactly. Right. So you're not even thinking clearly. You're, you're literally not even thinking straight. And so it's kind of the same reason why we organized a series of dialogues around these local issues in Michigan last year, right before the midterms. And the issues were things that were on the ballot. And so on the local ballot. And so there was like a housing question, a transportation question. But one of the things was an amendment to the state constitution about abortion. And we specifically decided not to do an artistic interaction around that question because people are too emotional and they can't have a conversation about it. And so it's not to say that we shouldn't talk about those kinds of difficult issues. It's just that you can't have a conversation like that in the moment. You need to have established a relationship first before you can have those conversations. And so if I were to organize, maybe I would say yes to the offer from Berkeley if we could do a year's worth of dialogues that began with just the relationship building part and we didn't even talk about the situation for like six months, but nobody wants that. Everybody wants to argue and yell at, with, at each other about, you know, that right now. And I just don't see how you, they can when they have, they're not even in relationship with each other. Has there been a moment in any of your activations, your events where you did have to talk someone off the ledge emotionally? Well, very early on when I didn't really know what I was doing at all, 
<laughs> you know, before I realized, oh, you have to like lay more of a foundation before you can have those difficult conversations. You know, in the very early days, people would just come over and start arguing about politics and that <laughs> this was chaos. And I realized, oh, we can't, you know, people can't just walk in the door and start, you know, do start doing that again without having some kind of relationship, even if it's minimal. Um, but what, very early on, there was this guy who said, I'm trying to, I, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but he basically said, well, you know, Japanese internment wasn't so bad. I mean, people had a place to live and, you know, they were fed every day and they, they're, you know, people were, they, they, their, their businesses weren't stolen. They were, they were purchased. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. So that was a moment when the whole table just erupted. <laughs> Yes. No, you hear that argument still today about slavery sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, that's that's really not right. And so, you know, I guess a lot of times I'm accused of like, well, you're just being a both sider. And I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, I would never, you know, we did not allow that. Like, I mean, the whole point of having the dialogue was so that other people at the table could correct him essentially. But we have to be able to do that in a respectful, humanizing way. You know, he, I mean, he just, I, I just don't think he knew. He didn't understand the history. Like, and if, if he clung to that opinion, even after being respectfully told what the actual history was, then, you know, then maybe we can be angry with him, but I'm just not going to get angry with him at first. Like I want to, you know, one of the things that I say to people, the, like the, the most important rule of these dialogues and I say it over and over, is we have to assume best intentions. We have to assume that this person isn't trying to hurt us. And as long as we always assume best intentions, I think we can, that's, that, that's like the beginning of getting somewhere with these conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Philippa and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And if you enjoyed this episode, won't you please share it with someone you think would like it as well? Art Restart is on all the podcast platforms, and your word of mouth means the world to us. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.